Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. I'm your host, Adam Homey, and I want to welcome you to today's episode and today's topic. As you know, and as the name says, our listeners are business creators, and they fall into one of four categories. They could be entrepreneurs, small business owners, and local business owners. They could be marketing and business coaches. They could be folks who help others build their businesses. These are the folks I like to call the business creators, whether you're a marketing and business coach, whether you're a strategist, whether you're a designer, whether you're a media and publicity expert, whether you are an investor, anybody who helps others win at the game of business and marketing. And of course, and this is a significant portion of our segment, the do-it-yourselfers who run your own businesses, handle your own logistics, and just love to have your own hands on the levers as you grow your business. If you are one or more of the above, please take a moment and explore episodes and discover how our experts can help you win at business and marketing at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Also, be sure to check us out on iTunes. Just do a search for Business Creators Radio Show. Every five-star rating is greatly appreciated and helps us spread the message further. So as of right now, we are ready to get started with today's topic, which is called Become a Leader Who Inspires. And I'm particularly honored to have with us Mr. Kevin Allen. Kevin, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Absolutely fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> I saw you just popped in there a second ago, and we are ready to rock here. But let me just uh, tell our listeners a little bit of what we're doing today. Kevin Allen is somebody who uh, you may not recognize his name just yet, but you certainly recognize something that he's done. He was the pitch man behind MasterCard's now iconic priceless campaign. It was a campaign where it says, this costs $20, this costs $50, and this is priceless. And Kevin is going to share a priceless story on becoming a leader and how you can rise to the occasion and become a leader who inspires. And just tell you a little bit about Kevin, just to give you a little bit of the background. He's the founder and chairman of the employee engagement company called Planet Jockey, which specializes in gamified learning and collaborative learning and excuse me, mentorship programs, and Recap, which is a business transformation company which counts Burberry, Smithson, Swedbank, and Verizon among its global clients. He's recognized one of the world's most accomplished growth professionals. And with decades at the top of advertising giants McCann World Group, the Interpublic Group, and Lowe and Partners Worldwide, Kevin has worked with brands such as MasterCard, where he was the pitch man behind the Priceless campaign, Microsoft, Marriott, Smith Barney, Nestle, L'Oreal, Lufthansa, and Johnson & Johnson. He was an early part of Rudolph Giuliani's team that prepared the way for the successful mayoral election and turnaround strategies for the city of New York. And that's going back a minute, so you know that Kevin's been in this game for a while. Among the things that Kevin is going to share with us today is the case of the missing cutlery, a leadership course for the rising star. As the pitch man behind MasterCard's now iconic priceless campaign and author of the Wall Street Journal best-selling title, The Hidden Agenda, which draws on his storytelling ability to offer a true account of his journey to becoming a leader. Among the things we're going to learn today is a young manager at an airline catering facility with silverware disappearing at a rapid clip. Alan was called upon to solve the case of the missing cutlery. In his quest to solve the mystery, Alan, or Kevin Allen also learned to rise to the occasion and to become a leader who inspires. So you ready to get started? 
Yes, absolutely. <laughs> all right. So before we dive in, before we dive in, uh, I've read off your biographical statement with all of your many accomplishments. What I'd like to do is just sort of take a step back and give yeah. those of our listeners who may not have heard of you just yet and who haven't sure. had a chance to get to know you a chance to learn more about you. So just well, tell you. us a little bit about your background and what brought you to where you are today and how you've come to help entrepreneurs and business leaders become emotionally intelligent leaders and so much more. We're going to cover so many more things in, uh, in the process of uh, what we're doing today. Well, well, thank you. I mean, God, I, I, I don't know about you, but my internal age is 13. So when I hear this list <laughs> of accomplishments, I'm thinking, who are they talking about? <laughs> Can't be me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a guy, I was born and raised in Babylon, Long Island, so any, any, anybody out there who knows what that is, um, as a, a kid from the wrong side of the tracks, was raised by a single mom, raised four kids single-handed. And, right. um, but, I, you know, I was the kid that wanted to get out. And I remember, you know, when I went to my grandmother's house on, on Sunday, while all the crazies were in the next room, you know, hurling beer cans at each other, I was in the kitchen listening to my grandfather's shortwave radio, listening to international broadcasts. <laughs> of course, I didn't understand the languages, but I thought, God, where are these people? You know, where, you know, who, you know, who are they? And then one day I heard the following: This is BBC World Service, and now Brahms number right. one in B flat major. I thought, Holy God! Who are these people? How they they they, they, right. they forget about it, or or or, or <laughs> all these Brooklyn things that I heard as a kid. But it really was even at that early early stage, um, the beginnings of what I now call a real ambition, which is. What is it you're creating that didn't exist before? And I, I just wanted to be among those people. And you know, how many decades later I found myself among them. So it's a, it's a great, great uh, ride I've had in the in the, in the ad business and, and what I'm doing now. Uh, but it's it's been it's been a wonderful experience from a kid from nowhere. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's I think a lot of us have a story to tell along those lines. And yeah. I mean, it's just, I just love hearing the stories from all of our various guest, ex, guest experts because we all come from different places and yep. we all have formative experiences that lead us where we are. And I think that most yes. of our listeners, and I think you and me will probably agree at some level that if we look back on our lives, maybe 20 years ago, we couldn't fathom yep. where we are today. That's really true. And you know, when I think about, um, uh, entrepreneurship in particular, because I was a guy that really started my life as a corporate guy and then became an entrepreneur late in my life. And, and believe me, that was one amazing transition. In fact, the best transition of all probably would be, you know, all those years of Mr. Corporate, you know, high flyer and sitting in, you know, seat 1A and 2B. And, and then as, I, as, I, as an entrepreneur, I go to the door and hand my ticket to the smiling attendant who goes, oh, no, you're back there. <laughs> you go sit with everybody else and coach. So you know when you're when 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 the money's your own you really uh, you really look at life differently. But I think the, the 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 entrepreneurial life really has to do especially with a belief system, and 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 believing that something can be creating can be created that didn't exist before. Right. Precisely. Precisely. Now, here in the Business Creators Radio Show, our listeners know that we provide the tools, the techniques, and strategies to help our entrepreneurs quickly grow their businesses. And a lot of our listeners have told me that they can take pretty much anything that any of our guest experts share with us and make it a reality, put it into action. But they cite just one of two things that's missing. It's either time or money. 
And this is a question I like to ask every expert who appears on our show. And not only do we get such a great variety of answers, but sometimes we even get the question interpreted differently. So, Kevin, let me ask you, uh, in what ways do you feel that time and money may be getting in the way of helping folks become true leaders? Yeah, I think that uh, there's two things, the first of which is the speed with which things are happening um, uh, every day it gets faster. In fact, you know, there's an old expression they used to say in the ad business. You, you, can have, you can have three things, but you can't have all of them at the same time, fast, good, and cheap, you know. And I really think that, that the thing that we see today is that, that, that um, the, the issue surrounding the amount of money that's required to invest, the speed of, of, of advancement, Including if you come out with something great, how quickly is that going to be? How's that going, is that going to be replicated? Um, right. And so, so tools and practices um, to make you more effective in this environment, um, you know, I think are really, really important. And and not that these tools are rote, um, but you know, as we talk about pitching and and leading, there are you know, I, I've I've realized over the years that there are some simple practices that, you know, when you take the time to go through them, can make you terribly more efficient even down to you know the phone call you make to a prospect or the conversation you have with an employee you only get one shot right. at that so if we talk about time versus money if you approach it with a good you know with a good solid preparation not that it takes you four days but simple good solid preparation maybe a tool you're going to have to do that once because that one time is going to be effective right and i think that's something that people miss all the time, which is sometimes just a little bit of preparation and a little bit of a plan and a little bit yes. of a strategy for how we approach these things. Yes. I mean, if I have yes. somebody on the telephone with me that's inquiring about doing business with me, I want that yep. phone call to end with, your, you know, congratulations, we got your payment through just fine, I'm looking forward to working exactly. with you. I don't really want it to yeah, end with, let's talk later. You got that right. In fact, I, I, I remember a wonderful man who uh, was head of the agency that we competed with for the priceless campaign. It came down to two agencies, just us and another. And we won the business, and he, 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 uh, I get a call from him. I was uh, in London at the time. And he says, I want to meet the guy that beat my pants off for MasterCard. And so we had lunch. <laughs> He's a wonderful guy sitting at the back of a restaurant with big, big sunglasses, you know, right out of central casting. And the guy says, let me ask you a question. He said, you know, in those days, McCann, you guys won everything. Did you guys have some kind of machine, he says. And this is precisely to my point. The answer was we did. And it was called pursuit strategy. And what I mean by that is before we go running off uh, to talk to a prospect, we would sit down very, very thoroughly and go through the same six questions every time. And even if we were in a rush, it may take us a half an hour as opposed to two days. But we would ask ourselves not just the functional questions but the emotional questions. You know, what's, the hidden, what's right. the hidden agenda? What keeps this person up at night? How are we going to connect ourselves to that hidden agenda? What's our argument? And just that 30 minutes, that one hour preparation made us so much more effective on the call. Great, great. Now, I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit more about that, because I know a lot of our listeners are really curious about this because of the Priceless campaign, which I think pretty much yep. everybody who's watched television in the past 10 years has heard of. <laughs> And yep. I know you're going to talk a little bit about the hidden agenda and how you did yep. it. So you've kind of given us a preview already, but if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Because I know, you know sure. I in particular, I'm on the edge of my seat. And our listeners know that when I bring on our guest experts, not only am I the host, but I'm sitting next to them with pen and paper in hand looking for that slight <laughs> edge to push my own business forward as well. <laughs> 
I think that the first thing, and interesting because in the priceless example, there were really two things at work, the first of which was how we solved the marketing problem itself. But then how do we pitch it? Because believe me, when you're pitching, I would say this. No one in this earth, I don't care what they say, well, business is about facts and figures and, and so forth. And, of course, yes, obviously business at the end of the day is measured by money. But notice I said measured by money, but it's motivated by heart. People do not buy with their heads. They buy with their hearts. And right. So to understand what is the true motivation behind the purchase. So you ask yourself, okay, well, this may be a business-to-business -business purchase, some guy buying an aircraft engine or <laughs> something like this. But is this person frightened? Is this person have an ambition? Does this person have a deep abiding belief system? And if I, you can uncover that, and they're not always going to tell you, particularly if they're fearful. I mean, you meet a, a person for the first time and say, so tell me a little bit about your business. They're not going to say, oh, my God, I'm terrified. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> they're going to be fairly <laughs> confident. But, but through certain kinds of questioning, the same kind of questions that a psychotherapist might answer to be, to be, to be crazy, um, will help you uncover those, those motivations. And then it's a question of how you connect yourself to it and how you prove that I am the answer to that fear. I am the answer to that, to that ambition. Um, and so in the case of, 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 of Priceless, it was recognizing that the research said that people feel guilty about using their credit cards. And sometimes you have to follow your gut, no matter how much research you get. You know what we said? I don't believe it. I called my mom. I said, hey, Ma, how, how did we... How do we survive back then? She says, well, I just didn't pay the electric bill now and again on my credit card. So my conclusion from that is, guess what? That credit card is pretty important to her. But what, what more importantly, what was, what was the hidden motivation behind that purchase? It was good people buying good things for good reasons, that you can't put a price on, on the smile on a, on a person's face um, or a reaction or a reunion with, a, with, with, a, with, with, with your grandma in Ireland. All those wonderful things that made up is what was transcendent and made priceless what it was. Pitch was actually about the ambition for the first time for a group of people to win against Visa. And so that whole pitch, yeah, of course we presented the campaign, but what the pitch was really about was how we could win and give them their first shot. And that's why they hired us. Right. And I think you raised a lot of good points because so often we're told, don't use your credit card for anything. I mean, even I, myself, I have a little bit more balance on credit cards than I'd like to, which I don't think is a very unusual situation in this, no. uh, in this time and age. So I don't really feel bad about it at all. I'm, I'm wiping the stuff out. We have a three-year plan to reduce right. the debt to zero, and that's yep. all well and good. I mean, my business yep. took a little bit of a hit during the Great Recession of 2009. Sure. I don't know anybody sure. who didn't. And we had to float some no. stuff. That's just the way sure. it is. And I think part sure. of what you were appealing to, because the things that we invested in that we needed to float were things like going to seminars where we found opportunities and we found new sure. relationships that are worth a lifetime. So it's all about yeah. saying, you know, we, we understand. We're not saying, you know, let's rack up right. the credit card and let's put yourself in debt right. uh, to the point where even your heirs aren't going to be paying it off. But let's, right. but let's say when we have the opportunity to put a smile on a child's face and we have the opportunity yep. – to create yep. those moments that will last a lifetime, to buy those tickets to Disney World, there is no shame in using your credit card for that. That's really true. And, you know, the other thing that you're, you're touching on is related to what I was referring to earlier. I call it feed your gut. And, you know, one of the common things, as I'm sure you would agree, about any entrepreneur or anybody starting something, 
um, or is a passionate belief in what your gut is telling you. You know, right. I mean, how 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 many things? You know, uh, to say if, if people ask, is Edison you was know, Edison or Ford? Yeah, if people asked me what they wanted, I would have given them a fast. They would have asked for a faster horse. I mean, no one asks for a lot of the things that great <laughs> entrepreneurs create. Um, but the 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 confidence to follow your instinct about situations in the in the way you've just done. You said my instinct tells me that we need to get out to certain seminars because that's going to put us in front of our customer. Now, logic might have told you otherwise. But I have never seen an advancement, whether it was in my corporate life or in my in my, in my life as an entrepreneur, um, that didn't begin with an incredible leap of faith. And that's what I call a real ambition. Anybody's got ambition. Alexander the Great right. had ambition and burnt villages down. Michelangelo had a real ambition. What is it you are creating that didn't exist before? Do you remember the Kennedy speech years ago? We choose to go to the moon in this decade, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Now, he yeah. didn't say, you know, what do you think? Should we go to the moon? I don't know. What do you think? He said, we will. <laughs> and so that definitive statement about, about your real ambition is infectious, not only to the people in your company. And I don't even care if it's if you, like us, it's a tiny little company of a handful or whether it's a company of 45,000. Leadership is a journey. You know, it's not telling people what to do, you know, uh, 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 Dorothy, the Wizard of Oz, was a great leader because she said, "Hey, I'm going to Oz. Want to come with me?" <laughs> you know, and right. uniting people to believe that there was something incredible that could be expected at the end of what would otherwise be a very challenging and very difficult journey. Right, absolutely, and I think part of what we're touching on here, Kevin, is the area of persuasion and persuasive language. Yes. Now, yes. you mentioned to me when we, when we uh, communicated back and forth before our interview that there are uh -huh. three myths about persuasion that most people believe and buy into. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think, and I, I touched on the first one. I think that the, the, the myth one that is in business, decisions are about logic and facts. And I believe that the reverse is true. Now, that doesn't mean right. you don't have to make, you don't, you don't create an argument and tie that to business performance. But I've never been in a situation, and the stakes were high, when hundreds of millions of dollars were on the stake, where that wasn't made with a gut and with a heart, um, and as a result of a human motivation. So I think that's the first. Right. That's the first. I think the second uh, that we often hear is, well, it's all about the product. You know, the product is king. You know, build a better mousetrap, and the world will be the path to your door. None. Yada yada yeah. <laughs> <laughs> think, think about you know we, we think about <laughs> we think about a product as a brand. You know, there there have been it's a brand which is really otherwise a a label for your organization is a community of people who believe in something, and even if something goes wrong or the product may not be absolutely perfect, uh, you know, when 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 I think it was Apple Four, I forget which one it was that wasn't operating exactly perfectly, you know, people didn't leave it in droves; they stuck with it because there's something more transcendent about why people are attached uh, to, the, to the companies and the, and the brands um, that they love. I think the third is that people respond to trickery and pressure tactics. Um, okay. I think people are heck, a heck of a lot smarter than we give them credit to be. Um, and, and even if, one of my first bosses said to me, Kathy, he said, you know, even if somebody falls for something, there's no such thing as a one-time purchase. 
they'll wake up the next day and say to themselves, wait a second, what's just happened here? So right. all of this comes around to, to those three myths, to, to a simple statement that, uh, that, that persuading, in fact, I would argue, I don't think I ever persuaded anybody to do anything. Um, and yet I was supposed to be, and arguably people say, wow, this is a billion-dollar guy. I think it had more to do with creating a following that people willingly said, you know what? I believe in this person. I like what they have to say, and most importantly, they understand me and connected with my soul and my heart and what I seek. Um, the best example, I remember calling my mom and saying, you know, Mom, do you know anybody, as the greatest litmus test for persuasion alive, do you know anybody that sold door-to-door? And she says, oh, my God, yeah, Enid Merrin. She sold World Book Encyclopedia, right? So I call the woman up. She's like 85. She lives in Levittown. <laughs> it's almost like <laughs> mythical, but this woman really exists. And I said, uh, Enid, that's Kevin Allen, Joni's boy. Oh, my gosh, how are you? This is great. I said, Enid, you've got to tell me how you did this. So 1960s, as a woman, you knocked on doors all over Long Island, and you were the top salesperson. How did you do it? And she says, honey, it's very simple. A mother doesn't want a set of encyclopedias. She wants her kid to be president. <laughs> right. She understood. Isn't that fantastic? She understood the true motive and how to connect a product with a fundamental human desire. And and we think, well, we live in a modern age of high technology and things move on. Let's face it, that may be true, but certain things endure, like the aspiration for your child. Or, or, the, or, the, or the desire to, to seek, um, you know, an examined life. So, so at the end of the day, this is a human game. You know, that just reminded me. From my childhood, one of my prized possessions was my encyclopedia set. I used to spend hours <laughs> just leaping yeah. through that thing. Yeah. I was starved I for it. knowledge. My idea of a fun after-school after activity is when I got to go to the library for a couple hours and just lose myself in the encyclopedias. Yeah. I've always had a thirst yeah. for knowledge. To this day, me That's getting on the Wikipedia is a very scary thing because I'll open up one <laughs> article and then I'll see all the other articles it links to. Yeah. And by the time yeah. I finish yeah. that yeah. one article, I have 18 new tabs open on my browser waiting it. for me. How true. <laughs> We're two peas in a pod. If I looked if I looked at my encyclopedia for like giraffe and I'd see like Gibraltar, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. For another two hours on, on this stuff. Yeah, I, I hear you. Right, 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 right. Another point I want to make out uh, make out of this, and I think it's very important for our listeners to get this too, because there's another point that I think you and I agree on very strongly. Um, you know, we talk about the reasons why people make purchasing decisions. It has a lot to do with yep. the gut, even when we're talking about billions yep. and billions of dollars yes. and things yes. that are going to change the world. And it's been yep. my contention all along, and study after study and launch after launch has shown this, that people will make buying decisions based on emotion and then yes. back them up with logic. So the logic needs yes. to be there because after they make yep. that emotional decision, they're going to go back and they're going to justify it. And they don't, they, yes. and they don't only do this with per, you know, with products. They do this with life decisions. I mean, I've jumped into relationships uh, based on emotion and then justify sure. them with logic. I have, uh, you know, I've bought cars. I've adopted yep. cats. I mean, there's so many things that I've done <laughs> because of an emotional reaction in in that yes. moment it's just it's just you know and if you understand that you you have so much more power in the marketplace so i think that's right. here yeah sure 
Absolutely. So, so I wanted to shift gears here a little bit, and this kind of you know, you know, reminds me of a little bit of a funny story, too, because I remember when I was in secondary school, I was on the academic team, and we were in the semifinals or something, so we traveled to some other school for the, for the, for the meet. And while we yeah. were in the cafeteria, I think I made off with about 70 or 80 forks, and I was going to use them to make fork sculptures. <laughs> yes, I admit there's a little bit of larceny in me. I got a little bit I of scarlet in the closet. Uh, so, so when I read about when I read about the case of the missing cutlery, because you know we know that as a young manager at an airline catering facility, there was silverware disappearing in a very rapid clip, and they called upon you to solve it. Now, what they is this? Now, first of all, tell us a little bit about that and what happened. Okay. And I'll and the second part is what this experience taught you about becoming an inspirational sure. leader. I will do that. First of all, I, I have reports that the, that the lunch lady is still looking for your silverware, but I just didn't want to put that down. Yes, I'm sure she is. <laughs> so, you know, I thought I, the latter part of my life, the enjoyment I have and the joy that I have, and, and now that's rolled into a business, is sharing with people 30 years of what I've learned, including all the mistakes I made, for which for every one good thing I did, I, I screwed up 10. And right. it's such a joy for me to be able to say to somebody, hey, look, you know what? Here's a shortcut for you. You don't have to do this. Trust me. And rather than tell the stories of my high-flying exploits as a, uh, exploits as a great ad man and all this other you know, uh, corporate sweet stuff, I thought, well, well uh, you know, where can I find an anecdote or a story about me as, an, uh, as a brand-new leader? Because the, these are lessons for anyone, whether high or low or middle, but it's also – my, my intention to help those that are, that are coming up in the business. And that was my very first job at right. Marriott In-Flight in Services. So long story short, um, this um, rather disagreeable fellow from Eastern Airlines, who was the airline of the day, rather large airline of its day, um, declared that the cutlery was going missing by the bucket load, and it was our task to find it. Now, I looked high and low, and, and, uh, and I happened upon the dishwashing room one afternoon, this huge room with this great, conveyor-belted behemoths. And while wandering through this extraordinary room with 110-degree heat, I wandered over to the trash compactor, and there, at the bottom of the trash compactor, is gleaming Eastern Airlines cutlery. I thought, my God, they're throwing it out. So I turned to the team, and, and of course, I love these people because, you know, I'm a kid that went to college on a union scholarship. I mean, uh, these people are like my people, even though I'm the guy with the lab coat. And I said, right. for God's sake, what are you doing? And they looked at me, and their eyes are shifting back and forth to each other, and finally one of them steps forward and says, Mr. Allen, you may, you, know, you remember George from Eastern, you know, he told us if there was one piece of silverware with a stain on it, that everybody would be in trouble. And we worried about whether you might be in trouble, and we can't get half of it clean, so we didn't know what to do, so we threw it out. So, <laughs> so here is, in a way... A situation that so many people face in so many organizations, the idea that every person sets out, when they leave their home in the morning, they want to return home to what I call the 6 o'clock conversation. You know, like for everybody else out there that has kids, you know, when the kid goes, so how was your day? And the child replies, guess what? <laughs> it always starts with those two words. I don't think anybody stops doing that in this life. We all want to go home at 6 o'clock, turn to the person that's important to us and say, how was your day? You know what? Guess what happened today? Well, these people were in, in, a, in a tough spot. So I said, well, listen, first of all, stop doing that. But we've got to get to the bottom of this. Now, of course, 
I'm terrified. You know, I'm 22 years old. Half of these people are old enough to meet my parents. I've never done this before. No one gave me lessons. I had absolutely no idea what to do. And a wonderful woman named Jodell, who was sort of the, she was like the grandma of the place. Everybody respected her, said to me, pulled me aside and says, you know, Kevin, um, now you and I both know that you don't know your you-know-what from a hole in the ground. <laughs> right. But I'll tell you what, um, they love you. And you know why they do? Because they know that you put them first. They know that you right. understand them. They know that you've filled out the, their kid's college application. You lent them 10 bucks till next payday. And they know that they, because you would do anything for them, and you understand what's in their hearts, they will make you float buoyant um, as a leader. And, and I never forgot that. And all she said is, whatever you do, just stay out of their way and don't mess it up. <laughs> And so I realized at that very moment that my task was not to tell them what to do and wag my fingers at them or yell, yell at them or chastise them, but to make them believe and give them the confidence that they, could, that they could solve this problem. And ultimately, they solved it. And interestingly enough, they solved it not uh, by me telling them what to do, but by, by the words of who was originally a resistor, a woman named Daisy. It's like, ah, you know, I've been to this movie before. You don't never get solved and so forth. And finally, after talking to Daisy and saying, you know, Daisy, my mom used to say that if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it. You know, contribute something positive if you can. And if not, you know, maybe you should kind of zip the lip. And it was only a few right. days later that she said that she comes up with the idea of baking soda, she says. My father said that you could take the paint off a Chevrolet with baking soda. I think it'll work. And uh, after a long story short, they made a, they made a brew out of, uh, out of water and baking soda, let it soak. And sure enough, that silverware came out there uh, at the other end of those conveyor belts gleaming. And, you know, I've been, I've been in a lot of positions in my career, and I've seen a lot of things, but... Seeing the pride of those people having solved that problem is something I'll never forget. And the idea that, that people who have a have an entry-level position cannot be motivated to do something great, I just don't buy for a second. But a lot was learned from that. Um, and that you people follow you uh, not because you wag your finger at them, but because they believe that you are worthy. Right. Exactly, and I and I think you I think you raised a couple key points here because whenever we see things like leakage of silverware or the office supply covers seems a little thin, what is the first thing that typically comes to mind? People think, oh, well, people are stealing this stuff. They're they're right. taking stuff exactly. home. Why can't they go buy right. their own silverware? And ultimately you found right. out that this was mostly a waste thing. People weren't doing yes. anything necessarily nefarious. They were just throwing stuff right. away rather than taking right. that extra second or two to pick it out of the, out of the tray and put it over right. where it could be washed. Right. It's true, and I think the one thing – I remember one of my earliest bosses said to me, Kevin, before you – because I found there was some infraction or something, but I thought was an infraction going on. He said, Kev, before you point your finger at your team, remember there were three fingers pointed at you. You are right. the one that sets the environment. You are the environment creator. You are the rule setter. So if something goes wrong, you have got to ask yourself first, what are the conditions that I have created for this to happen? Whether it's great, in which case you want to keep repeating it, <laughs> but if it's not so great, there is more than a fair chance. The problem was, frankly, I had to kind of admit it, you know, it, what, that I was really the one that created the environment for it. Yeah, you're very right about right. that. Right, right, right. Now, all of this, I think, is very inspiring, and all of it, I think, is very interesting. And, uh, and you know, if the lunch lady ever finds me, I'm just going to have to say, you know what? <laughs> I confess. 
I cooked the damn pork, and I don't even have the sculpture anymore. Uh, I don't know how we solved this. You know? <laughs> and what, what was and 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 what was also uh, uh, I mean, there's another and a, and I know I'm the far from the first one that ever pulled that prank. I mean, I think everybody has pulled yeah. a prank or two at that time yeah. in their life. I mean, and even yeah. the academic advisor who took us to the uh, took us to the to the meets and everything, even yeah. he, even he knew about it, and he said, uh, yeah. "I'm going to watch my forks." around you from now on <laughs> yeah i mean i mean yeah and and, 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 if any, and if anything he was um he was uh more interested in uh knowing what i did with these sculptures because he was also the art teacher so he wanted to see what i came yes. up with so he asked me yes. on the qt to just sort of tell him what i did with them and i can't remember what i built with it but it was actually pretty cool it's one of those things that after i you know went off to college and then when it was coming time to move out of my parents house and Certain things just didn't have sentimental value anymore. That was one of the ones that went out, but uh, yeah, oh, wow, yeah, man, yeah, it was kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So we have something in common. Right, 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 right. And and I've been and I've been in situations in the workplace where sometimes a little rebellion is actually called for. And I'd like to you know actually yes. just steer off uh, track just ever so slightly here because I think there's a point yep. you can help you can help us with. Um, and this sure. is another one of my true confessions. Uh, yep. We're going to go back. Uh, we're going to go back 12 years to the year 2002, and I yeah. was about 24 or 25 years old at that time. I can't remember exactly. I was just a, a young buck feeling his oats, and I was working in uh, this. I was working for this mid-sized company, and I was in the middle of a cube farm, and uh, I, I I had a sneezing fit. I don't know exactly what happened. Something got out my nose or something, and I was sneezing. I couldn't help it. And then this this person from this other department comes over and very rudely tells me to keep it down. I say okay. And then after she turns her back, I and after she turns her back, I made an obscene gesture behind her back. Uh-huh. I, uh huh. I found uh, somebody saw me do it and reported it, and oh uh, and here's what I discovered about corporate culture. And I think in the, the, the way this way sort of segues. Um, folks seemed less interested. And the fact that I did that, which was a very wrong thing to do. I mean, it was one of those heat of the moment type things. I, I acknowledge that. Uh, right. They seemed less interested in the fact that I did it, but they seemed more interested in her position on the organizational chart versus mine. And I'm wondering if getting stuck on org charts and getting stuck on valuing people based on their pay grade more than who they are as human beings yeah. Could be part of the problem when it comes to leadership. What do you, what do you think the issues with that are? Oh, because yeah, yeah. I, and I and I fully acknowledge. Yeah, I I did yeah. it, and here here's the reason yeah. why. I'm not saying I'm a great yeah. person and I did it, but yeah, I yeah, did yeah. it. So I'm not, I'm a, I'm a human being. I'm not perfect, but uh, yeah. they didn't even really seem all that interested in that sentiment. What they wanted me to do was acknowledge that she outranked me. That seemed to be what they were really yes. stuck on. Yes. You're touching on a very interesting concept here, and and you know I think that they're. There are two key eras, I believe, in in how commerce has evolved from what I would call the supply economy era, which was largely post-World War II, um, and what we call now, what I call and others call the demand economy era. Now, the supply economy was all about um, an unlimited demand for products, and no matter what we made, people bought them. And as a consequence, organizations became effectively distribution entities. And as a result of that, hierarchical command and control structures. So you're right, org chart, top-down process, because the whole process, the whole issue was about process. 
Now, as time has evolved, I would argue probably by the early, the late 80s and early 90s, we began to see a profound shift in the proliferation of product choice and an increasing power um, of the customer. And slowly but surely, through the Internet, the democratization that occurs through transparency. So what that means right. is organizations which were run where the value system was about yes, sir, with emphasis on the sir, and right. this notion of rigidity of behavior is giving rise to a completely different kind of company. A high-performing 21st century com company is not a hierarchical yes, sir entity. It is a community of people bound by value systems and appropriate behavior. Now, it's right. arguable, and, and obviously an emotionally intelligent company would have examined that situation very differently than the command and control experience that you had, which was right. your behavior was inappropriate, single it out, irrespective of how it was motivated. Yeah. Right. However, in, a high, in an emotionally intelligent company, her behavior would be culturally inappropriate. Right. She probably wouldn't have done it because it would be so culturally inappropriate to behave that way um, that it wouldn't have given rise to your behavior um, um, in, in any event. But so as a consequence, managing companies um, in the old days was really about the ability to exert uh, control and a very rigid set of rules and practices. Managing companies in the 21st century is all about the power of emotional intelligence, how to understand, how to, how to, how to reach people on, uh, on an emotive level um, and, and, to, and to rally them together, not by what, they, what you're asking them to do, but by where you're right. taking them, the journey that you're taking them on, and how they are galvanized to do it. Very interesting contrast. And you're right. You know, she's very her behavior in by today's company standards was wildly inappropriate. Fair right. enough. Your response was your response, um, but not to have the generosity of spirit which would which would characterize a contemporary company such as that would be almost paleozoic. Exactly, because, you know, I mean, I don't dwell on it, but I do reflect on it because I think there's a lot of sure. lessons to learn from that. And if she, yep. I mean, I mean, I knew what I was doing. I was coughing really loud because something got out my nose and I couldn't help it. Now, yep. if she had come over and said, are you okay? I yeah. would have said, oh, sorry, I just got something stuck up my nose. And then she said, okay, well, bear in mind, we can hear you clear over there. So if you could please uh, try and keep that down, I would have said, got it. Now to be the end of it. Right, 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 right. Yes, I, I completely, completely agree, and, and uh, you know, and it comes to, to even, even down to the way an emotionally intelligent leader will request something of someone. You know, the, the, the old way is, I want you to put these three things over here. And okay, so the person does that, as opposed to a highly emotive leader would explain, let me tell you what we're building and what we're doing and why. Putting those three things over there will have an incredible contribution to what we are trying to build. How would that make the person feel? In terms, even if though it right. is, a, it is a, a moderate, somewhat somewhat mundane task, um, it's like that old old adage, you know, when the person was walking past a, a, a building site and they said, "Well, what are you building? I'm building a house." Goes to the next one, "What are you building? I'm building a bridge." Uh, what are you building? I'm building a cathedral. 
which, which building site do you which building site do you want to work on? You know, <laughs> right. And, and 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 I think it's interesting that 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 question could be very subjective. I think there are people who'd yeah. want to live in a house, there are people who'd want to build the bridge, and there are people who'd right. want the cathedral. I because I, I mean, when I heard that question, and I've heard yeah. it from other places as well, I think about yeah. that. I think some folks right. ask that because. They assumed everybody's going to say, oh, yeah, I want the grandiose cathedral. But there's value in that bridge, and there's value in that house, and there's value in that cathedral. Where is that person yes. coming from? What are their yes, experiences? Right. What, are their, what are their values? And, where do, we, yes. and yes. where do we go from there? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. A- exactly. Now, now, we partially already answered my next question because you gave me uh, and our listeners a lot about the whole idea of corporate culture and where we are and how we approach people if we're trying to build something right. that's going to be very healthy. And, you know, right. well, obviously, as I just mentioned, yeah, I did the corporate hustle for a while, about six or seven years, and I yep. had some great managers and I had some great leaders. These are people who, to this day, I think back and I thought, yep, 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 I can, I can hear them. Ten years from now, I can hear them saying this, and yeah, 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 as uh, right. old so-and-so would tell me, uh, I know what to do here. And then there were some right. who had to be just absolutely clueless as to how <laughs> truly uninspiring and how yeah. alienating they, they truly were. I remember, yeah. I mean, I don't want to point fingers or anything like this, but we had a meeting at a company once. Uh, you know, there were 300 employees in the meeting, and we all got in a big ballroom, and we were having a conversation about diversity, and the president of the company stood up, and you can hear, and I'm going to try and replicate his tone of voice as best I can to see if I can capture the tenor of the moment. And he said, and he said, uh, and he said this is a dialogue while he's standing up and hovering over people. And right. if I don't feel <laughs> that we accomplished something here, I'm going to be very angry. My God. Now, I, not only me, but a lot of people immediately interpreted that as him actually saying, shut up and do your job that he was putting up the facade that he was creating some sort of dialogue, but he wanted people to get the hint that he wanted to hear their whining, just go do your job. Now, and there were other things this guy used to say. I think he had no clue that he, there were so many times when he said something that sounded good, but then he added a phrase afterward that just completely negated everything and had people rolling their eyes thinking, who put this guy in charge? I mean, how do so many people in authority just so completely fail Yes. I think that I think that there comes a point in your career and not many people really have the, have the have had the benefit of understanding and and been sort of trained to understand a key transition. And the transition goes okay. from being your career defined by a physicality of what you do, whether it's writing an ad or being a good salesperson or there's sort of a craft that, that, that is part of the early part of your career. And that's how you rise, because, wow, he's really good at that, and he's really terrific. And all of a sudden, then someone says, okay, you are now a leader. You're now the manager. And yet, right. that is a vitally important transition, because actually what they're really saying to you is, I don't want you to make stuff personally anymore. I want you to do something or some things that get other people to do it and like it. <laughs> Now, right. that's a very difficult transition. And so the idea of saying, I want you to make those things, is not enough. And it leads me to a notion that I call cultural permission. In fact, it's an article okay. I wrote for the Harvard, Hard Harvard Business Review blog, uh, some, some, I guess about last year. And it is the power of language, you know. And, you know, 
culture, which is a which is a, a collective value system about how people are going to behave and what they think is right or wrong, in the same way that we just judged that that lady's behavior was not appropriate, is right. is created by a common set of language. So when I was coming up in the business and I heard things like, I want blood on the tracks um, right. and take, take no prisoners and all this kind of thing, the cultural permission that that created was predatory and therefore yes. was unhealthy. And I won't tell you the name of the company, but it was a very big one. And they had sure. a very big fall. And the big fall they had was because of the inappropriate behavior of people who felt because of that language they had a permission to do inappropriate things. Now, that's right. also true of positive language. And what I realized when that boss said to me, Kevin, congratulations, you are now dinner conversation, when I got my first management job, first of all, I was utterly terrified. But I thought, <laughs> dinner conversation? What's this guy talking about? And what he was saying to me is, Kev, at 6 o'clock, your employees are going to go home and they're going to say one of two things. They're going to say, Guess what Kev said to me today? You know, you know what we're doing? And he said that I did this and I did that. Or, just as you described the fellow you've just been describing, do you know what that bum said? Do you know what he had the nerve to say to us? And believe me, that person is destined to fail because his employees will not make him buoyant. Right. Right. I, th- I, think, I think there's another point that you made is that, uh, you know, when people find themselves, they do well in their job and then they get thrust into leadership, it's automatically assumed because they did good at their job that they had before that that automatically yeah. imbues leadership qualities. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't become a leader, but being a yep. leader and being somebody who's really good at what you do are two different things. Yes. Um, like that same Absolutely. person um, was famous in, in his industry for his negotiation skills, for his ability yep. to create functions and organizations that made them run smoothly. And he did mm-hmm. so well with that that somebody came over and they, and they dubbed him a CEO. But yep. there was a piece that I think was missing in terms of the communication yep. and how you get to inspire people. And if he had had that, yes. I think, yes. I mean, I mean, he, he still does what he does. Uh, I mean, so, yep. I mean, he's getting by somehow, but there's, a piece missing there and an opportunity missed. Now, this, this is – I'm having so much fun with this conversation, Kevin. I mean, we only <laughs> – at this point, actually, we only have about 12 minutes left. So, I mean, we're going to okay. have to jump ahead here a little bit. Yeah. But there is something I want to ask you here because I do want to give you a couple moments at the at the very end to, uh, to uh, let our listeners how you can help. Is Great. What do you consider the single most important asset that a leader can have? Uh, I think that um, – Empathy and great listening skills, which are one one and the same. My mom used to say to me, Kevin, listen is not waiting for your turn to speak. Um, and it's not just listening for the functional stuff. It's listening with your emotional antenna so that you can understand right. what's in the hearts of your people. And if you can listen very carefully and realize, so that's what they're frightened of, or that's what they seek, then you can galvanize them and say, hey, guys, how would you like to do this? Because I know we can get there and I know you can do it. So I really do think being, being empathetic um, and being a great listener is one of the hallmarks of any great emotionally intelligent leader. Right. Right. I think that's great. Now, I've heard you talk a little bit about a concept called buoyancy. For our listeners, could you mm-hmm. share that? Because I yep. think that's very powerful. Sure thing. I think that in the, in the, in the yesteryear of command and control, 
where leadership was telling people what to do. Buoyancy is the that which you, you are made to float by your people because you have been able to connect um, with what matters to them and what they seek and galvanize them in such a way that they say, this person, this woman, this man is worthy and we're going to float them um, to help us get where we want to go. Right. Right. I think, and I, and I think that kind of ties back to a lot of what we've covered in our conversation thus far. And I think that's yep. great. Now, as we, you know, draw into the you know, last few minutes here, what I'd like to do is uh, give our listeners and leave them with something they can immediately embrace and start implementing. So if somebody who is listening to the business creators radio show or somebody who was receiving coaching from you or was in the audience when you were speaking was looking for some sort of way to begin making that transition to becoming a truly inspirational leader, what would you suggest that they do to help them get started on that path? I think one of the things you might, they might try is what I call a real ambition statement. And it starts okay. with two words, we will. Sit down with a piece of paper and with some of your key people and say, what are we going to create that didn't exist before? And let's fill out the following sentence. We will. When I worked with the city of New York, we created a statement that says, we will create a place that's safe for people to live the life of their ambitions. That's what we wrote down. And believe me, everybody thought we were crazy. So that, that real ambition statement has to sound impossible. It has to sound ridiculous. The same way that when Kennedy said we're going to the moon, people said, moon, what is this man crazy? And believe me, people love to be galvanized around an incredibly ambitious task. So that would be the first thing I would do. The second right. thing I would do, and most important, is bring your customer inside your company by asking yourself a key question. What is the hidden agenda of our customers? What keeps them up at night? What do they worry about? What do they fear? Not what do they like about our product or don't like about our product. Get under the skin of who these people really are. And when you really understand them and what they seek and what they want, in the same way that Soccer Mom was a was an incredible way of defining a group of people that gave rise to a successful election. It's understanding broadly uh, what's in the hearts of your buyers. You do those two things. You can connect your ambition with what's in the hearts of your buyers. And that, my friends, is a way to, to move your company toward toward growth. And I think that's so simple when we think about it as well. And it goes back yes. to what you've been sharing with us, Kevin, since the very beginning about a little bit of planning and a little bit of foundation and a little yep. bit of a, shall we say, a method to the madness when yes. we do what we do in terms of establishing our leadership, uh, uh, organizing our corporations and our organizations and things along those varieties. So we actually yep. have a, you know, a couple extra minutes here and uh you know what i'd like to do here is first of all you know, kevin allen thank you so much for being with us today and uh, let me just uh, you bet you bet let me turn over the floor to you for just a couple minutes and just tell us a little bit about your service to the world how you serve business creators and how folks can engage you uh, if they're yep. looking for more of what we have to share today well, thank you for that. I think the first is that uh, we we uh, we have a business transformation company called Recap R E K A P, right. 
right. and and it really is about helping people to reach their growth ambitions. And we work with all manner of companies as, as big as Google and as small as entrepreneurs. And uh, it can be found on our site, recaplimited.com. Uh, but one of the most exciting developments is the creation of the Planet Jockey Leadership Game, and and this is okay. this is a, a real advancement. You know, lots of our clients, particularly large, small, and in between, tell us that the biggest problem they have is imparting ongoing leadership skills training inside the organization that's available when people need it and how they need it, and it's especially true in middle middle-sized companies for whom the luxury of big a big budget learning and development is not always available. So we created right. Planet Chalky, which is a leadership game, online leadership game, which is a simulation based upon my 30 years of leadership in how to make effective decisions using emotionally intelligent leadership technique. It's it's fun, it's highly engaging, and what's more, it's, it has mentorship embedded into it so that when the question is posed, uh, and the answer that you get based upon the binary decision you make. You're the CEO of a company called Planet Jockey, and you've got to rally your people and bring them to a successful end. And this happens over five levels with seven questions in each level. And at the end of each question, you're given a mentorship, online digital mentorship, on why that question was the emotionally intelligent choice. It's all stored, so you have it online for a full year. There's a, an attached program called the Jelly Pond, which is a mentorship forum. So imagine while right. you're playing the game one afternoon, you can pop out, link in, and talk to every citizen of Planet Jockey, every person that's been playing the game all over the world, people playing it from Nike in Sao Paulo to people of ITV in London, and you can talk to them about, hey, I got a meeting Thursday, and this worries me. What do you think? And you would essentially get wisdom from the crowd, and then people like myself and several of my colleagues go online every day and offer mentorship to the people who are logging in. Uh, and it's topped off with a video library from my years of, 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 of leading and managing as one suite called Planet Jockey. And we're getting wonderful response to it because nothing, nothing more engaging than a wonderful game and a good storytelling. Right. Right. And I, and I think you, you hit upon a couple things here. Uh, and, and if you could tell us a little bit more about this, you know, we have noticed that the nature of learning has changed. I think we're a little bit yes. past the idea of lecture and learn because I don't even think 100 years ago that that really worked very well. And no. I was wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about, particularly sure. with the changing of the generations and the impact of technology and everything else. It sounds like you have a pretty good handle on that. And just for well, some you. of our you know, some of our listeners to help them better sure. Um, sure. embrace their learning and their opportunities. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I, we, I guess it was over a year ago we began to study uh, as our clients began, because we do a ton of training, and our clients began to t tell us that you know, they're, they're, we, we would really like you to think through um, what you believe to be the, the, the contemporary mix, particularly the old the difficulty and challenges of an entirely new generation, the millennial generation, of how this group learns. And the first thing we've realized is that that the search for information and the willing participation and engagement is one vitally important piece of how to learn as opposed to, okay, you're going to be sitting in a classroom all day and someone's going to squeak chalk on a, on a, on a chalkboard all day. So, so the first piece is it has to be engaging, and it has to be at will, where you can come to it and away from it as you wish. So that's the first thing. The second okay. thing, it, it has to be an engaging journey. 
it has to be a storyline so that, that Planet Jockey has a, a, an exciting storyline about a company in crisis and how you're going to be involved so that the person places themselves in the learning in the situation, but that learning becomes an outcome as opposed to, okay, here you are here to learn, and here are the four right. multiple choice. This is a real-life situation. Multiple choice is, is, is high school. These questions are based upon A or B, you know, how many people, for example, you know, you have a resistor in your team. She is speaking too loudly and often. What will you do? Question A or B. So, you know, in business, we don't have a choice of multiple choice. We have a choice either high or fire, yes, no. So these are real live decisions, and they've been created by people in the business, which leads me to the second piece, really, which is this has to be practical. You know, how right. many people say, I went to the seminar, made me feel good, I went back to the office, and I don't know what to do with it. So the Planet Jockey Suite, through the learning outcomes, has tools like, like the Real Ambition Statement, like the Allen Key, all these things that people can apply, but not only apply, but the, when they need it. So if, if so, the Planet Jockey subscription stays with you the whole year. So imagine you've right. got a meeting coming up on Thursday, and there's that woman that kind of makes you crazy because she's a little too outspoken. You go, of course, Planet Jockey. You go straight to the sections, and they're sitting on file, ready for you to re you know to use again after you've been exposed to it. Is great tips on how you're going to handle that meeting. The second piece or the third piece is community, and that is the idea that contemporary uh, leaders and the emerging millennial leaders have been accustomed to and require the wisdom of the crowd to be able to seek out and ask others of their peers what they think and sift through a series of inputs, uh, not only from their peers, but also from mentors, which is the fourth place. That mentorship, um, you know, my generation was don't trust anybody over 30. But we now know that there is a tremendous thirst for mentorship. So in the suite is built not only the mentorship in the videos that appear in the game itself after you've asked, answered each question, but the mentorship that exists online in real time as you enter the jelly pond, which is what the, 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 uh, the, the, the forum is called, uh, to reach out not only to your peers but to others. So we're very, right. very excited about it. We're getting terrific uptake about it. We were named a top startup by, in South by Southwest, and we're being featured by uh, the London Internet Expo as one of the top 15 companies, uh, up-and-coming digital companies. So we're really, really, really proud of it. And that can be found at planetjockey.com. Absolutely. And, I, and, and for those who follow uh, the Business Creators Radio Show, this is another reason why you should really stay and listen up until the end because you just got I'm, – I'm sorry, i got to say it. You got even more priceless insights – on leadership <laughs> and communication and how to bring people together and help them get engaged. Uh, I mean, this, there's a lot here, whether you're in a corporate setting or you're an entrepreneurial setting or you're creating info products. There are a lot of great strategies within what Kevin just shared with you about how to more effectively develop your information products so that you get more success stories translated as case studies, testimonials, the social proof that is going to drive even more sales and even more business for your organization. So right, yeah. right here near the top of the hour. So I want to, uh, once again, Kevin Allen, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's been certainly an education for me, as I'm sure it has for many of our listeners as well. Well, the pleasure is mine. I'm so pleased you, you, you uh, had me with you.
Absolutely. So for everybody listening, remember, check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Check us out on iTunes, where every five-star rating is greatly appreciated and helps us spread the message to more business creators just like you. And for now, this is Adam Homie. Have a great day. We'll see you soon. Take care.